Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, this is the uh, 17th sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And this evening's study is James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. We've reached uh, the final sentences of James's letter. Now, have you noticed that these sentences, as Samantha read them to us this evening, are different than the sentences we have read previously. We've read from the beginning of the letter up to this point in what I would call a more long, flowing narrative of explanation, analysis, and commands. But now we have a series of staccato-like sentences tumbling one after the other. Now, this should not surprise us, because we have seen the same pattern in other New Testament letters we have studied. And if you are a certain vintage, as I am, you will remember what it was like to write letters on stationary paper, particularly if you were to write to a friend or family member overseas. Because in those days, airmail stationary was expensive and of a limited number of pages to qualify for the weight limit. It was very strict. And you were pressed as you realized that you were running out of room, that you had to shift your style of writing. You went from the longer paragraphs of news of what's going on to this final third flurry of information squeezing your signature in the narrowest of spaces, or even writing up the final sentences of greeting or farewell up the sides of the stationery, left or right. And when you consider how costly a papyrus scroll would have been for a letter at the time of the New Testament, easily a week's wage for an average worker, you can be sure you made every word count as you got to the end. God forbid you'd have to go on to another expensive page of papyrus. So James is dictating in this style. There are three quick exhortations, all beginning with questions of asking about a particular condition, and then a command to do. Suffering? Do this. Cheerful? Do this. Sick? Do this. What we read here, really, are three common conditions of the Christian life. Let's go to the first. Experiencing suffering? It's in verse 13a. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, perhaps some of you may recall the 1981 book by Rabbi Harold Kushner, the title when bad things happen to good people. Well, James directly disagrees with Rabbi Kushner. Bad things 
do not happen to good people because there are no good people. In the eyes of God, there are none righteous, not one. Indeed, the Apostle Paul quotes the psalm which says this in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There are no good people. It's not that bad things should happen, but it is more of a wonder that more or worse things do not happen. Indeed, the entire human race stands in the dock, condemned. We deserve death, indeed. Now, James begins understanding all this, but he also understands the glorious grace of God in saving him and all who accept the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know, don't we, how in the Psalms you will read of lament. Why is this bad thing happening to me? But also we can see there as well how God seizes, bends bad things to serve his glorious purposes in our lives. We've just read, haven't we, how James wrote that we are to remain steadfast, patient, under the burden of this, minute by minute and day by day. So James' question goes a bit further in providing us with the support we need. How should I respond when a bad thing is happening to me? James writes, pray. We might object if James, a spiritual surgeon, were sitting next to me today, you might want to say back in the chat, pray, James? I know I should pray, but that's no help at all. Now, James's answer is that context usually teaches us how to fulfill this expectation. And we know this, don't we? Because he wrote about this at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you know, you see, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And here's the key. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In other words, we are to pray that we may respond to the current burden of suffering in your life and mine as a Christian believer, asking Give me wisdom, Heavenly Father, to remain steadfast. You see, James's focus is on the daily slog of day-to-day -day life. That can grind a person down. 
So we are to pray to gain God's wisdom so that we may be assured that what is happening is necessary and will be transformational for our souls. What about the second question? Anyone cheerful? Second half of verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Well, now we see another side of James, don't we? All through this letter, he was compelled to give the most serious teaching, especially in light of the life-threatening spiritual adultery underway in these congregations of Jewish believers that threaten the very lifeblood of their fellowship. But now he recommends the benefit of being in good spirits. Now, the term he uses is one used in Greek medicine, I discovered, by no less than Hippocrates himself. There, in the fragments of his writings that have come down to us that survive, he writes about how being in good spirits contributes to the patient's overall state of health. So to smile, to laugh, to be cheerful, we're to be encouraged by the Father of physicians. Now, perhaps you or I may have heard or read how smiling activates the release of neuropeptides that work toward fighting off stress. This week I read an article in Psychology Today how these tiny molecules allow our neurons to communicate so much more effectively, facilitating messaging to the whole body that we're happy, sad, angry, depressed, or excited. These feel-good transmitters, the dopamine, endorphins, serotonin, are all released, it turns out, when a smile flashes across your face as well. Not only does it relax your body, but it can lower your heart rate and your blood pressure. Now, maybe you're like me, where a smile is a flicker of some corner of my mouth. The amount of times my folks used to say, smile, Henry, and I would say, I am smiling. Guess what? Even a fake smile works. And has everyone here been told by their grandma or great aunt that you better stop frowning or the wind will change and you'll be stuck like that for good? Well, maybe it was just me. But notice what James does here. How does he exhort us when we are in good spirits? How do we sustain that sense of good spirits, cheerfulness? Sing praise, he writes. In other words, we are to sing psalms and hymns grounded in the psalms. One could argue, indeed, that the most repeated command in the scripture is to sing God's praises. Now, how does James make these connections between cheerfulness and singing praise and grounded in the psalms? Well, I want to suggest that as Jesus' half-brother, he would have been an unwilling witness to his testimony and ministry in Galilee. And then just imagine for a moment to be gloriously saved at his brother's resurrection. 
how he must have shaken his head in wonder. And in a humbling kind of humor, laughing at himself in what was done literally before his eyes and was so misunderstood. But now, oh, he understands it all. And he's amazed by the glorious grace of God toward him. One pastor wrote to a young man, Be humbled, walk softly, down, down, for God's sake, my dear and worthy brother, your topsail. Stoop, stoop, it's a low entry to go in at heaven's gate. You know, that's not the cringing false humility of Uriah Heep and Dickens' David Copperfield. Rather, that sense of humility at heaven's gate, for we stand there now, don't we, is the wonder that I'm absolutely, totally dependent upon my Heavenly Father's grace for me even to breathe, to take one breath in and out. I am sustained microsecond by microsecond every single day. My Heavenly Father delivers me daily from the idols I want to set up. Therefore, all my body, or with the old word they used to use, all my affections, which means the sum total of myself, all that I am, is being gloriously delivered. And so I sing praises in response with all my affections turned to him. One, you know, it doesn't have to be a bad singer, or a good singer like Lewis is, but to sing. You know, actually, if we don't, it's a symptom that something's wrong. What about the third? Is there anyone sick? A bit longer now. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. and Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. Now, do you notice that there's something odd about this last exhortation? Well, in the previous two, it's directed at you, what you should do. But here, it's directed at the elders, what the elders should do. Now, why does James do this? Well, he gives us some clues, doesn't he? The first thing we need to be clear on is that James is not telling us, forget the doctor, in some sort of either-or sense. So, don't give up your health insurance here in the United States or the national health over in England. And this is where the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is so helpful. Did you know that there is a liturgy there, the visitation of the sick? It's grounded in James and in what James teaches. So for homework, I commend you to read through it this week. And what you'll see there and here is that James is focused on the seriously ill, 
not the trivial. The clue is in the way in which there is a link between anointing, confession, and the sure and certain hope and comfort of the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, this ministry that the elders have is not a medical ministry of the body, but a spiritual ministry of both body and soul. Indeed, it's a regular ministry of the church. It's one that I have quietly followed through the last 30 years of my ministry as an ordained elder in the local parish. Now, the focus here, as in the Book of Common Prayer's liturgy of visitation, follows this pattern. James focuses on how in times of serious illness, the Christian believer will feel their spiritual poverty most acutely. Their awareness is weighed down by their sinful condition. And this is so vital to understand, especially in light of verse 15, because many have mangled that verse and wrongly, wrongly linked illness with personal sin. Perhaps you've been told this, or or thought this, that because of a health setback, or for some that I've counseled in the past, it could be a, a, a medical tragedy, like a miscarriage or something like that, or the onset of cancer. And they're told by someone in the church that perhaps there's some sin connected with this in their life? Now, let me tell you this. Whoever gives such advice to a burdened fellow Christian is in serious error and should be made known to the pastor. Our physical limitations that result in sickness or in loss are the result of the fall. That bears repeating the limitations of our physical bodies that result in sickness or in medical tragedies are the result of the fall. When your body lets you down, whether it's an illness or indeed, as I'm experiencing now in old age, it's the result of your fallenness, which you share with every other son or daughter of Adam. Holiness does not equal good health. Holiness does not equal good health. So when a believer is weighed down, so conscious by their life's spiritual poverty, it really is the wrong thing to go all stiff upper lip and just try and shrug it off and forget about it. But it is to pray and to have the elders pray with you as they minister to you, so that you may be anchored in the assurance that you have no unconfessed sin in your life and to know for certain God's glorious forgiveness. To be assured that even when in weakness, my Heavenly Father smiles on me. We are refreshed in the gospel to realize again how God saved me in the dark. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think of it like this. Your Savior became flesh for you 
in the darkness of the womb of his mother Mary. Your Savior hung in darkness upon the cross to endure the fullness of God's wrath for sin, for you. And he lay in the darkness of the tomb and death to rise in justification for you. You see, it's a wonderful thing James is doing here. He's not explaining the consequence of a lack of faith, but how God works modestly in the darkness, wondrously in the doctrine of our souls. And so the last sentence, confess your sins to one another. We do this every time we gather as a local church and we come before the Lord in prayer. We confess our sins to God and so to one another as the scriptures exhort us to do. We do not rationalize them. We do not hide them. We confess them with a humble, lowly, penitent, and obedient heart. And so we hear from God's scripture, the minister declare and assure us of our forgiveness, you see, because in the end, you know, it is not the elders, the minister who heals It's not the oil that heals, even the prayers that heal, but it is the Lord who has healed. So be encouraged, my dear friend, my dear believing friend. God cares for your physical condition. So here's a final question. Who is the Lord in these verses? Now, in our study of James and his spiritual autobiography, I do wonder if James were present when he saw, with his half-brother, Jesus, the tiles shift in the roof above them, and so watched the companions lower the man down on his cot to rest at Jesus' feet. And when Jesus saw their faith, what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. The ripple of shock in the gathered crowd. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this rabbi think he is? And so Jesus, seeing their faces, hearing the murmuring, turned again to the man lying at his feet, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. They took up his bed, and he walked. James is remembering this. And so, with cheerfulness and the wondrous awe of God's grace, you can just imagine him thinking, the Lord Jesus Christ did it then, and he's doing it now. For you. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. 
You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.